0: Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I want to begin here and I want to begin... I want to push the accelerator a little bit at the very beginning of a sermon, and then we'll back off. And I also want to warn you, I'm not doing it to trick anybody. The other shoe's not going to drop. There's no surprises. I just want to push on a couple of things that Job says right away that will make heads or tails of when we go to our second passage. Job here has received a lot of bad advice and blame from his friends after losing everything and sitting in anguish now in his life. He's trying to figure out what's going on. His friends are too, and they're really bad at it is what we discover. Bring on the amens. Thank you, Mark. Job believes in this instance, though, that he stands innocent. He doesn't believe he stands innocent in everything in life, as far as I can tell, but in this instance, he says, I don't think that's the story here, and I think I I would be found innocent right now. He says, my Redeemer lives. That's my vindicator, the one who's going to make it right. The judge of everything. That's the one who I want to stand before, Job says. He longs to be vindicated. Everything's wrong. I want it to be made right. He's looking for his courtroom moment before God to be exonerated. He believes only the righteous judge of all can make that happen, can make justice out of injustice and right out of wrong. He says that judge is going to stand on the earth and I'm going to stand there in my flesh before him. Job proclaims it at death, and if it came tomorrow, he says, that'd be great, because with everything that I am, body and soul, I want to stand before the judge. I want to stand before God, my vindicator and redeemer. And like I said, I want to push on the accelerator this morning just to ask a question, uh, since we read these words of Job, do you believe that in the end you will stand before the righteous judge of all? I don't ask that this morning so that we have a fire and brimstone moment. I I think it's a really important question for us to consider regularly so we have eternal thinking. Do you believe you're accountable for your actions? Job says, I think on that day, my Redeemer lives. And he's going to vindicate me. Then Job says, I myself yearn for that moment. I yearn to be with God of the universe. I long for that moment to be with him. Job yearns to be made right with God and to dwell with him. Does your heart long for that today? To be in right relationship with the God of the universe. To be vindicated and redeemed. To be made right to be able to reside with him forever beginning now. I want you to just hold on to that thought, because we're going to come to a passage in Matthew in a moment, but I recognize that this is a, um, I haven't been up here for a little while, and there's been a few reasons, and so I want to start with a story, and then some things. Um 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, I was working at Covenant Bible College in Northern Colorado. It was one of three campuses. It was a uh one-year school of discipleship at that particular campus there were only 44 students it was intentionally small um, so that that discipleship could happen in a really close-knit community Um, and i lived in the dorm with 22 guys as i was the resident dean of men but i was, was dorm dad and sometimes janitor is what it was it was a load of fun it was pastoral care though is what it really was and it trained me for parenthood and pastoral care more than anything else could have over those two years of working there but one of the, the ways that we structured the day there was that in the morning they'd get up for class and they'd have basically an 8 to 10.30 block where everybody was in the same class and then electives would be in the afternoon and other things that would happen. So they were actually in class doing theology and uh, biblical studies and all that in the morning. 10.30 was a snack break. That was a hard break. They loved that moment of the morning. And then 11 o'clock we always did at all campuses, story at 11.00 which was the coolest thing, where everybody in the community got to tell their story. So everybody took turns, faculty, staff, students, everybody got to tell their story of, why are you here? Where did you come from? How did you come to Jesus? All those questions could be answered in that moment. And we got to know one another in that close community. But as the year, of course, went on, you ran out of stories within the community, so they brought people from outside the community. And one of the most impactful that I recall working there was a family from north, another one of our covenant churches in Northern Colorado who came in and spoke about they had a, a, three kids, their daughter had, who had some significant disabilities, and then two sons below that, and they lost their daughter at the age of 10. Now, at the time, that wasn't, you know, it was an interesting story to hear, and it was very touching, but it wasn't, didn't have the reality it had until now. But the one thing that they said that was so key that I remembered and kept with me until this moment is, They said their church family was so helpful when their daughter finally died in supporting them. And they said, when you're picking a church family, pick people you can live and die with. Thank you for being those people. I'll cry a few times, I guarantee. Thank you for being people we can live and die with. There are, over the last six weeks, people that have been doing my job. I don't even know who you all are, to tell you the truth, but thank you. I hope you've enjoyed it. I do. The leadership team has been really, really supportive and helpful over the last six weeks. I can't tell you how much I'm indebted to Garrett. He already does a lot here, and then over the last bunch of weeks, he's just gone over and above. And Jordan as well. I'm just tremendously thankful this morning. And I'm not gonna make it a big sob fest the whole time, but I gotta get the thanks out because it's been a while. But one of the things I wanna I wanna point out, that I'll point out many other times, is this. I'm thankful and feel very supported and cared for. I wanna make sure, and this has been one of my goals the whole time I've been here, is to make sure that what we do to care for one another is replicable so that we can always extend it to everybody that comes within our world and our congregation and our care. That it is as consistent as possible that we can give that, that we are a place who is hospitable and welcome in the name of Christ to people who are looking for a church home, and they would know that this is a place that they can live and die with people, and that we are hospitable and in the name of Christ to those who don't yet know Christ and are without spiritual home at all that we're on the lookout for them as well, and we are a hospitable place and care for them the same way. I'm tremendously thankful for that and believe that that's our mission or part of our mission to do that. And as, as we continue on in that spirit, so there are no assumptions this morning, both online and in person, uh, I'll say what happened very quickly. The, one of the sentences I've hated starting over the last six weeks is, my daughter passed away on October 6th. I have, I have three kids still. It just so happens two are living at home, one's living with Jesus. And it's not funny yet, but it will be eventually, I'm sure. But we've been trying to figure out how to, how to, how to phrase it. But I don't, I don't know what the next weeks, months, or even years will look like. I've talked to people who are grieving, and they've told me, you have no idea what's ahead, and I believe them. And I don't know that we know what's ahead as a church body either. I've never done this before. But I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your grace as we figure this out. But I also tell you that, that piece of information that almost all of you already know because you've been there with us, because I assume every week that there will be guests with us in our presence. And I don't want to assume details. And I hope you assume there will be guests with us every week in our presence and look for them to welcome them in the name of Christ. So if you're a guest with us, and I know we have some regulars online, by the way. Good morning, Ardith. She's um, She's a regular. But if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're disciples who make disciples. And one thing that that means is that we support one another even in the darker moments of life. And we serve a God who's big enough to walk with us in those moments as well. I'm thankful to be here today with you all to open Scripture. And I also realize that I have a unique place within this in that as pastor, it is not appropriate to simply bring you into my grief and walk that way in a giant stream of consciousness over the next few weeks. My job is to proclaim the Word of God, to preach, teach, care, and love. And so we're going to do that together as we open up God's Word, to take the grief that many of you are experiencing as well, and ask how can we make it benefit the body of Christ as we open God's Word. So we're going to open God's Word to Matthew. And it's going to be a puzzler as to why I would have picked it, I think, for a moment, but we'll get into it. Matthew 22. And we're going to read verses 23 through 33. Jesus has just been challenged by the Pharisees. Now he gets challenged by the Sadducees. We don't see them much in the Gospels, but here they are. That same day, The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Hold on to that one for next week. We're going to come back to some of this next week. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. You would hope that the Sadducees would have been astonished at his teaching, but they clearly weren't. It was the crowds who were astonished at his teaching. But I want to give the Sadducees a little credit at first. I want to ask, what do they get right and what do they get wrong? We're not going to go in great depth on all of this. There's actually quite a lot going on there. Like I said, we'll pick up a little bit of it next week, but we're going to add a psalm to it all. Um, What do the Sadducees get right? Let's just point out, they had strong convictions. I think that's worth noting about the Sadducees. Um, The Sadducees particularly were this group, Jewish group that were close to the temple. They were pretty much in charge of the temple uh, rites and rituals by the time of Jesus there weren't a lot of them. They were very powerful. They obviously have a clue what they believe, but they rejected most of what we would call the Old Testament at this point. So the Pharisees, Jesus, most people of Jesus' day accepted the, the Law of Moses, the, what are the first five books of the Old Testament, um, as well as the prophets and all the historical books and the, the wisdom literature and all of that. Um, the Sadducees didn't. They pretty much rejected all of that except the Law of Moses, the first five books. Of the Old Testament. And they're generally skeptical about everything that comes after that and interpretations that come after that. So the Pharisees were, they were skeptical of them too, since that's all they did was surmise on, you know, the interpretations of uh, the law. Jesus, though, when he responds to them, he's wise. He could have picked out, and we'll pick out a couple of these passages in a moment. But he could have picked out other passages that reference the resurrection, but instead he references something a little bit larger. In and he speaks their language. So he references the law, the book of books of Moses, when he references the covenant. So he's speaking their language. By the way, this is really important for us when we encounter people who don't believe the same thing we do, to be able to learn to speak their language, to translate what it is we believe. Jesus does that kind of thing with the Sadducees. So I admire the fact that the Sadducees had a clue what they believe, and they had conviction about it. Now, if you study the Sadducees at all, you might be a little bit skeptical, um, and you might be say that there's some cynicism and, and financial uh, gains that they have from their, their convictions, but they have convictions, nonetheless. They're, they're pretty strong on those. They're not going to waver on those. I can respect that, and I particularly uh, respect that since we live in a culture where I believe there's such milk toast faith around us sometimes, where people believe what they believe, but if you challenge it a little bit, they can't defend it whatsoever. We ought to be able to be like what Peter admonishes us to be, people who can defend what we believe and tell others what we believe. We can take a lesson from the Sadducees on that. Second, they discussed their convictions. They certainly discussed them with one another. They obviously had this conversation ahead of time. Hey, we were talking amongst the brothers, and this is what we figured out. So give the Sadducees some credit on this. They, They understood their view, and they kind of had a clue about the opposing viewpoint. They don't set up a complete straw man argument. It's not a complete argument that they can just knock over with no effort. It takes a little effort. But... Uh, the question's a trick when you get down to it. They're simply trying to trip Jesus up into discrediting everything about him. But they discussed him. They at least had some clue. Which leads me to, to the question that we ought to make sure we ask, as, as we brought up Peter a moment, do we truly understand the faith we proclaim ourselves? They understood their viewpoint. They understood the viewpoint of others. Do you and I have enough knowledge of our convictions that we know where our faith ends and another faith begins. I think we can take a few lessons from the Sadducees on that. But let's switch. What do they get wrong? Because this is the meat of it all. What do the Sadducees get wrong in all of this? Well, they weren't actually open to discussion. I mean, it was just a trick. The long short of it is that. They didn't actually care what Jesus said. They just cared about tripping them up. They weren't interested in having an honest conversation about what's true and what's not true. So that part they got wrong. But this, and this part stings the words of Jesus to them. You know, when you look, and it's not on the screen, but verse 29, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God, ouch, right? These are the people that take care of the temple and study the law of Moses. And he says, actually, you don't know anything about your job, you have no clue. You guys, are, you guys are operating in a way that shows that you don't know anything about what you're actually doing. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And the two verses that, that would have been pointed to uh, typically, and were pointed to by the Pharisees and others at this time to, to bring up their belief in the resurrection, we'll put on the screen ones, Isaiah 26, verse 19. It says, "'But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise, let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy.'" Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And Daniel 12, too, is the other one that they would point to as the primary ones. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And we should recognize that we too, as believers today, believe in the resurrection of the body. That that's what's going to happen. We state it in the creeds, the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, but of course it's biblical and it's demonstrated most profoundly in Jesus Christ who was resurrected. That what God did in Jesus Christ once in history, He's promised to do to all who are in Jesus Christ at the end of history. That's the promise. And the resurrected life, when we dig into it, I'm not going to go into the depths of it right now, but when we dig into it and what we see in Scripture, there's something different about the resurrected body. It it interacts with the world now differently with Jesus. And what God is doing with the resurrected body, it doesn't discount what happens, but somehow it makes something new out of it. And God does the same thing with the new heavens and the new earth he's going to do. What sin has broken is fixed. And the renewal of our bodies in this world for those who are in Christ bring new realities beyond our expectations. And that's really what the Pharisees get most wrong here. Is that one, they don't believe in the resurrection at all. They really don't believe there's anything after we die. And they do a pretty good job of taking what they can in this life and living that, that way. They don't believe there's anything there. But in their question is built the idea that all that God would have promised then in what is to come is simply a replication of the life we have now. And Jesus says, no, there's a lot more promise there than just a replication of what we have here. There's a whole new thing that God is doing. I bring all that up. I bring that up with Job too because in my reflections over the last month, don't want to miss the reality of what god does and what god is doing and where our hope is when we face loss so i will get personal in that sense and and i want to bring up idolatry because i've been struck by the fact that there's a subtle idolatry that can come in when we grieve the loss of someone and idolatry is one of those things where we don't worship wood and stone we actually don't run into a lot of people that do it still happens around the world it certainly happened historically and we, we we puzzle at why they would make a golden calf after the exodus and worship it but they did but idolatry obviously comes around we we recognize it comes around in different ways money and possessions and people and relationships and that kind of thing and it's the relationships where i think it can it can subtly show itself at times of loss and if we give into it we end up having a hope that is far too low for God's promises. And so I've discovered over the last month, I, I grieve the loss of my daughter. I I miss her tiny voice. And I miss all those things about her. The dog confused me the other day because she's laying on her bed as I walk by and I look in. Oh she's in bed. No, it's the dog laying by her pillow, which is totally cool because the smell's still there. I'm glad. But I miss that. Everywhere you see the one you've lost or grieve that she's not there. But what I've discovered is my hope is not in seeing her again. And if that's all my hope is, my hope's too low. And I'm not saying we don't grieve when we lose. We do. I'm saying we need to know our hope in the midst of that. My hope is standing in the glorious light of Christ restored with His redeemed people worshiping Him forever. And what Jesus is telling the Sadducees is you guys aren't seeing the fullness of what God is doing, the promise, the greatness of what God has for you. Does that mean that for those who are in Christ, when we get to be in that glorious light and get to be with Him, that we won't know those we love? Of course we will. I can't say that for certainty, but why wouldn't we? but it's going to be greater than those relationships. Much greater than those relationships. And that's our hope. If our hope is set lower than that, simply on, and and having been a pastor long enough and doing as many funerals as I've had, I've seen too many people have too low of a hope. Again, it doesn't mean we don't grieve, but my hope is in Christ. So is my daughter's. What's promised is greater than what is enjoyed or lost in this life. Jesus says that. He says it's not the God of the living, or God, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And He doesn't simply mean those who are living now. If He did, He'd be, the Sadducees would be included, but clearly they're not in this case. Those who are alive in Christ, those who are alive in the promises of God, those are the ones we're going to experience what is greater and those relationships aren't lost they're going to be enhanced in a way we can't even imagine in the glorious light of Christ see when we work to put the details in the proper place of what our hope is we can see that God is up to more than we imagined and that's a good promise so I have two simple admonitions for you at the end each with a scripture and then we'll we'll draw it to a close here We ask the question of, you know, accountability at the beginning, but also the question of, do we know what we believe? First admonition is this, seek to know the truth that God has promised. And it'll come up on the screen in a moment, but here's a, a scripture that goes with it first. And this one, I really enjoyed this scripture this week. Psalm 86, 11 through 13. It says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Make that your prayer this week. Teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. And the second thing goes back to what we saw in Job. Yearn for new life that only Christ gives. It begins now, if we're in Christ. Yearn for that new life that only Christ gives. Jesus in John 5 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Let's pray together. Lord, it is hard to lose in this life that which we value so much. You've given us the gifts of people and relationships. And Lord, you've given us relationships that are incredibly strong in many cases. But they're all gifts. They're gifts from you to be enjoyed for this life. And then, Lord, you have greater promises for us Not to undo those relationships, but Lord, the relationship that we have with you is paramount and first. And for those of us, Lord, who are stuck in loss right now, help us grieve well. For those of us, Lord, who have set our hope too low, help us find you. Help us know what it is that is true and right and believe it. And in finding that, we will find you, Lord because you are what is true and right. Help us know our hope and the promises that you give us and put those in our hearts so that as we walk out of this place today, that is our hope and nothing less. God, you are good. And we proclaim that this morning. You are holy and right and true. You're gracious and merciful, and God, I know I can testify, I've experienced your grace and mercy so much recently, and I praise you for it. I praise you, Lord. Amen.